thing or even an organization because, because of its outward appearances. Sometimes we judge things, we judge people, we judge organizations based on various things that we observe physically or externally. At one point in our discussion, my friend made the following observation. He said, I understand how the faith of some people is shaken when they see bad things happen to good people. Uh, in general, when, when they see bad things happen to good people in general, but especially when they see bad things happen to Christian people in particular. Now, he said what bothers, his words, what bothers me more is not when I see bad things happening to good people. He says what bothers me more is when I see good things happening to people who boldly and blatantly reject God and the gospel. And I thought about it. And I told him, I said, well, you're not alone. In fact, what we'll see in our text here in Psalm 70, or Psalms 37, as well as in the Psalm of Asaph in Psalm 73, that this is really the center of both of those great psalms. These are written by men of God, men of great faith, who are not just troubled by what they see happening to good and godly people, but the challenge to them is when they see good things happening to people that hate God. And not just when people who hate God, but, but the, the voice that they raise, as a matter of fact, both of these men give voice, uh, both Asaph and David, give voice to a very old concern. And that is not just when uh, good things or bad things happen to good and godly people, but it's, they are disturbed by the, the prosperity and the well-being of the wicked, uh, the wicked people, because it seems to go against the grain of biblical teaching. And in fact, I would so, go so far as to say that the reason this, is, this dilemma is challenging to people is not just because it goes what, against the grain of what we think the scriptures teach, but in essence, this, this idea of seeing wicked people prosper goes against the grain of all of our moral foundations. It doesn't matter if that moral foundation is religious or not, and it doesn't matter if it's Christian or not. Anyone who has any sense of moral, any sense of moral rectitude can't really reconcile when good happens to bad people because it seems like bad people are getting away with being bad. So it really doesn't matter what your religion is. It, it goes against the grain. So it doesn't matter if it's Christian. If it doesn't matter if it's Jewish. It doesn't matter if it's Islamic, Hindus. Even if you are humanistic in every worldview presupposes that you can't get away with evil. No matter how you define evil, we all have it in our, we, we are taught it from the time we are taught anything else that it doesn't pay, it doesn't pay to do good. And then we go out and we live in a world where we see not only people who, are, who, are, who go against the grain of right and wrong, 
but it seems as if they sometimes even go against the grain of right and wrong and attack the very people who stand for right and wrong. And it seems from our vantage point that not only does it happen, but they seem to be rewarded by it. That's where the problem comes in. You see, we have a basic understanding in all of our worldview. And by the way, I would say that one's religion is really defined by how you understand that worldview. In other words, this basic sense of right and wrong has an assumption and an expectation that right will always be, will, will always be rewarded and wrong will not survive. Now, in our more measured moments, when I say measured moments, when we're not caught up in the heat of any given moment, but we have time to really reflect on these things, we, we view these things with more of an ultimate end. In other words, when, we, when we're not caught in that situation, when we are not directly involved with, with the evil of a person prospering at our expense, when we have time to think about these things, we are more measured. And this is really what we see David doing throughout this psalm. He understands that there is an ultimate end here. Look specifically in verses 9 and 10, uh, where, he says, uh, where, where he says, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Also in verse, in verse 20, same thing, same, same idea. He has this sense of ultimate judgment and comeuppance, as it were. And in verse 20, he says, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish and like smoke, they vanish away. Verse 28, same idea. He says, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Verse 38 captures the same idea, this sense, this measured sense of, of understanding there is an ultimate comeuppance. In verse 38, he says, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Now, even though we know the ultimate end of the wicked, it is their present prosperity. It is their present well-being. In fact, not only the, 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 their present well-being and prosperity, but it seems as if, in many instances, their present well-being and prosperity is at the expense of the suffering of the righteous people. They victimize others. This also is alluded to throughout this particular psalm in verses 12 through 14 in particular. David acknowledges this. It's not just that the wicked do evil things, but they do evil things against the godly. Beginning in verse 12, he says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them or at him. He says, But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose, whose way is upright. 
Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Same idea in verse 32. It says, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. So it's not just that we are confronted with wicked people that, are, that seem to be prospering. But one of the things that intensifies our frustration is that we see them oftentimes prospering at the expense of the righteous. It's not just true in a moral sense, it's true even, even in an in, in, uh, organizational sense. We see all of the, 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 many of the churches that are, have the, the least commitment to the gospel always seem to be doing better. They seem to be better attended. The people seem to be more supportive. They get all the airtime, and everybody knows them. That's a precisely what, what would cause Asaph in Psalm 73 to almost stumble. It's not just that the, the wicked are prospering in our face, but it's that they are prospering in our face and at our expense. In Psalm 73, uh, Asaph said his, his feet almost slipped Therefore, David's intent in this psalm is to exhort the people of God to not allow the present prosperity of the wicked to become a stumbling block. Now, I would argue that the key to this whole psalm, which is why we've selected verses 1 through 8, we may come back and preach at another portion of it later, but I wanted to, to just focus on these first eight verses because I think, I think really the key to understanding the whole exhortation of the psalm rests in, in a phrase that's repeated three times in, uh, in, in those first eight verses. And that phrase is fret not. Fret not. I remember reading as a child, reading the scriptures as a child and remember that phrase, fret not, and I always understood it in terms of not being afraid. And now, of course, as, as, as Paul says, when I was a child, I understood as a child and spoke as a child, but now that I'm no longer a child, I put away childish things. And one of the things that's forced me to do is to understand that, Paul, that, that David is not saying, don't be afraid here. The actual Hebrew word that's translated as fret, I'm going to give it to you phonetically, it is kara. Uh, K-A-H phonetically, or K-A-W-R-A-W, ra. And the reason it's important to understand this word is because of what it actually means. It means to grow and glow with anger. To grow, to, to, to progressively reach a boiling point. In fact, it's almost like a tea kettle, that as the water continues to get hotter, the whistle, and we have... We, we have a tea kettle, we had a tea kettle that we were pretty much convinced that it was female. <laughs> because it would, it would whistle, and if you didn't come to it right away, it'd get louder. And just, it wouldn't just get louder, and it was almost as if it was shouting, look, I'm ready, I'm ready, come on here, or I'm just going to shut off altogether. And we were convinced that it was, it was one of our mothers, just, you know, just, it, it, was, it was female. And, and that's sort of what's captured here, but I think probably a better visual uh, illustration of what this word captures is, or what it conveys is when you light a charcoal. You take a charcoal and you're about to barbecue and you take a charcoal and you light it. And as you light it, you see it change. You see it go from black 
to gray, and then what you see is the flame inside of it, and really what the flame is doing is consuming it. And as the flame ultimately consumes it, it goes from being a brick of coal into being a lump of ashes. I think that's what David has in mind here. Uh, he's giving us the idea that, that the anger, it's, it's not just anger, it's not just momentary anger. But his warning here, David seems to be saying, is don't let the momentary prosperity of wicked people cause you, and, and, and don't let the lack thereof on the part of righteous people, don't let that burn within you and cause you to be consumed so that you are left to be nothing more than ashes. In fact, you notice that in verse 8, here's what he says. He says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it only tends to evil. In other words, if you get overly worked up, and it's not just in this instance, but when Christians are controlled by anger, nothing good comes out of it. This is what James says in James chapter 1, verse 20. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In fact, David in verse 1 adds this to the admonition. Not only does he say fret not, but in verse 1 he says fret not and be not envious. And right there you can see that shift, you can see that change. In fact, this is part of what Asaph's problem was as is portrayed in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 verse 3, Asaph said, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Again, the idea here is, is that anger, and certainly I can, as, as my friend was saying, that he gets angry when he sees, or it causes him to be shaken when he sees wicked people prospering. And so the idea, again, that's, that's, that's when you capture the essence of the word that's translated fret, since it means to grow in anger, you can see that this, this transitions a person from being perhaps righteously indignant to now be being caught up. In other words, you move from this state of being angry at, at the fact of, of wickedness to then becoming envious of what the wicked possess. And brothers and sisters, any time we allow uh, something else to disturb our peace that we have in God and what he's promised, that's when we set ourselves on rough seas. See, there's something unhealthy about that. And, 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 and so his idea, that the idea that's portrayed is that this anger doesn't remain dormant and the object of anger when it's uncontrolled and it's unbridled in a fallen heart, even if it is regenerate, is that it becomes something else. And can't you see, isn't that true of, of so many of us that, that we've been angry or that maybe something happened, someone said or did something, and then we allow it to grow then to the point that we can't stand anything they say. Right? That's the, that's, that's that, that's the fretting that David is illustrating here. That we, 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 maybe it was justified, maybe they did let their dog, you know, do their business on your lawn, but then all of a sudden you didn't like their mother, right? 
And all of a sudden that became grounds for you to be cruel towards their children. Sometimes justified and, and, and righteous indignation can become something altogether different and altogether unhealthy. And very much like the, the coal that is consumed by the fire inside of it. It all of a sudden consumes the individual anger, unbridled anger can consume the right thinking even of people who belong to the Lord. And so David begins by telling us, don't let your anger flourish by what you see. He understands that, yes, there is an inequity here that, that the righteous should not, I mean, the, or should not suffer at the hands of the unrighteous, his concern is that this doesn't become, it doesn't shift from righteous indignation and grow into something that is far worse. As, as Asaph describes with himself, that it becomes envy or it becomes any other thing that is inconsistent with what God has intended us to be. Here's the second thing that we see here. Not only does David focus, and I think the, 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 the main point of the psalm is found in the warning that's repeated three times, fret not. But the second thing to note here is almost as a counter to the unhealthy progression of anger. David admonishes his readers in verse 7 to be still. To be still. Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. And again, it's, 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 it's a good contrast because on the one hand, when he says fret not, that indicates a progression in, a, in an unhealthy direction. And David says instead of progressing in that which is unhealthy, he doesn't say, he doesn't say replace that activity with another activity. He actually calls us into that space of what we call the sacred stillness of the saints. David reminds us to, 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 to pause for a moment. In other words, you could put it this way, to pump our brakes. Not only don't go forward in that, but just, just pause. And he says, notice what he says, be still before the Lord. I think this refers to both our personal devotions, where we take our time in our, at some point in our day where we pause in prayer, and the reading of God's word, certainly it would include that. But brothers and sisters, here's what, the only thing that gives substance to our personal devotions is our public devotion. When we come together, that's what, that's what feeds, fleshes out. That's what gives the foundation to our personal devotion. It's not the other way around. It's when we gather publicly into that sacred space where God calls us. And the idea is that public worship on the Lord's day, has a way of refocusing and recalibrating our thoughts. So that what God does is he gathers us into his presence on his day, and then he, he raises our thoughts above the clamor and above all of the cares that continue to surround us. Now let me just say this real quick, that, and, and, and we need to hold in mind that, that when we come into the sacred space and we worship God, it's not escapism. 
No, we're not not elevated to some utopia and then we're floating on clouds and then go out and expect everybody else, as I said this morning, that all of a sudden we're going to walk out the door and bluebirds are going to be singing in our shoulders and all the children are going to be smiling and sharing candy and all of that. No, it's none of that. That's not what it does. What God does when he calls us into a sacred space, he knows every headline. In every newspaper, (laughs) he knows what's on all of the talk shows, all of the news shows. He knows what every talking head is saying. But He gathers us into his sacred space and that stillness and reminds us of a greater reality. God calls us into his sacred space and he surrounds us. He surrounds us with the truth that is greater than the moment that we are living in. God gathers us into his presence and allows us to contemplate the sovereign Lord of all creation whose power is irrepressible and whose purposes are irresistible. God calls us into his space so that we are reminded that his provisions for his children are sufficient for what's going on outside. One of my favorite verses in the Psalms is Psalms 46.10. And in Psalms 46.10, the author says, Be still, know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted above the earth. Brothers and sisters, David says, here's what we, instead of allowing yourself to just be overtaken, and by the way, even though he's addressing specifically Growing anger as we look at the prosperity of the wicked and the disparity of what's taking place with the righteous. I think his words here are true for us in anything that gets in our crawl. Anything that that disturbs our day. God says, come into my sacred space. Be still for a moment. And let me show you some things. See, in other words, brothers and sisters, what's going, what God is doing to maintain his universe, he's doing it even when we are caught up in front of our televisions, can't believe that somebody said this, can't believe that somebody's doing that. And we are called into the presence of God and he says, wait a minute, listen, hold on for a minute. You're up here bothered about people who have birthdays. You need to hear from one. Who doesn't have a birthday. You're all bent out of shape about somebody who's got to lay down and go to sleep. Come into my presence. The presence of one. Who neither slumbers nor sleeps. See God, David says, be still in the presence of the Lord. To offset what else is going on out there and what else is growing within you. The idea is that somehow as we bring ourselves into the presence of God and we are nurtured by him and he raises our thoughts. It's what John says. Then we discover not only must I decrease, but everything else around me decreases when God is exalted to the right state. That's the point. You see, if, if, if you can't, 
If you are so bent out of shape over what someone says, thinks, or does that it bothers you, you can't even smile, you can't even love, you can't even speak, then something is wrong with you. It's not that we're not concerned about the affairs of the world, but it can't be greater than the goodness of our God. Here's what David says. Be still. Be still for a moment. Come into the sanctuary of the Lord and be still and know that he is good and know that he is God. I would argue, thirdly, that our sacred stillness before the Lord, our sacred stillness before the Lord is the means by which God strengthens and equips us for dealing with all of the inequities that we see around us. So our our sacred stillness before the Lord, to put it another way, our resting in him. Because essentially that's what it is when we come into that sacred stillness, what we are doing is ceasing from us and resting in him. And so when we come into his presence, when we are resting in what God has given as he raises our thoughts to another level, he reaffirms to us and he refreshes us within the substance of the object of our faith. The substance and the object of our faith. In other words, notice again, David says on, on, uh, at least twice he reiterates, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And when we speak of trusting in the Lord, he's referring to both the substance of what we trust as well as the object of what we trust, which is the Lord himself and what he has promised to us. What God does is he brings us into his presence and he gives us something to contemplate. So therefore, if you look at verse 3, in verse 3 he says, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord. And, and here's what's implied behind that. He's not saying do good so that good, do, that good can, can be done for you or that it's going to bring you a reward. Here's the, the implication is that when we fret, when we allow anger, even if it starts in a right place, when we allow anger to have undue course through us, then it stops us from doing good. And what, what, what David is, is doing is pointing us back to the Lord. In other words, the reason for our doing good to begin with is because of our love for the Lord. Sometimes we fail to do good by trying to get a point across to the ones that we're trying to get a point to. In other words, we won't, we won't extend ourselves to someone because of our issue with them. But the purpose of our extending our hand to anyone is because of our love to God. I like what Jesus says to Peter when he encounters him after the resurrection. And remember, Peter has has just figured, I've I've just blown it. And he's not even going to try to preach anymore. He's trying to get his fishing license back. So he's going out to the sea. He's fishing. And the Lord comes up to him and pulls him aside in a sense, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. 
Three times he asked him that. But here's the, the interesting thing that's easy to overlook. What, what, what Peter is being reminded of is that his obligation to the sheep has more to do with his relationship to the shepherd than it does to the sheep. In other words, proof of his love to the shepherd is his willingness to, to feed the sheep. Proof of our love to our Savior is not those, those pious things that we send up, many of them sometimes because they are laden with our own fallenness, don't leave the building. Thank God for an editor called the Holy Spirit who only takes to the Father what needs to be heard and not all of the rubbish that we say, right? But when we, so when we, when we what, what really, what, 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 what our, our service to the Father, listen, it's not, it's not about how good we pray. The, here's what God says. Here's what Jesus says. Proof of your love towards me. It's not, it's not in what you, what you say to me or say about me. Proof of love towards God. It's not how high we can jump or how loud we can shout. It's not because we cry at certain songs. Proof of our love for a gracious, loving God is how we reciprocate that love to others that we can see. That's what John says. How can you say you love a father or God whom you have not seen when you don't love the brother that you see every week? I think what, what David is doing here by telling us to trust in the Lord and do good. He's saying, in other words, don't let your own self-appointed vigilante sort of Christian justice put you on a course where doing good doesn't seem good to you. Because that's what can happen. I've seen people who have issues with churches, places, and things, and they will not do the right thing and then they will give their own human explanation for it. Lord has commanded us to, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the custom of some. That's, that's not a suggestion, by the way. That's not, that's not multiple choice. He says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the custom of some. And some will do well. They, you know, when, when back in 1974, I went out there and nobody and somebody happened to them. And, and we go on. He said, that, that doesn't have anything to do with what he's commanded. Here's what David says. Trust in the Lord. And do good. In other words, don't let what you experience, what you observe, no matter how, how inconceivable it might be, don't let it keep you from doing good. Here's the second thing we see when we come and we pause in the sacred stillness of the Lord. We are reminded not only of our of our divine obligation to do good as a result of the righteousness we've received, but we're also reminded, as you see in verse 5, that we can actually cast our cares upon God. In verse 5, it says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust Him, and He will act. Now, here's what... Uh, there's... there's um, 
it's, there's much that, that people have read into that. Commit your way to the Lord again. It, and we, it's easy to reduce that to an idea of if you do this, then God will do that. But there's a, a better interpretation of it that, that, that I read, and I think it's, it's worth bearing. In, in fact, uh, William DeBerg, 19th century preacher, puts it this way. A better understanding of this phrase, he says, is to roll your way upon the Lord. And by way, he means your care. Roll your way upon the Lord as one lays upon the shoulders of one stronger than himself a burden that he's not able to bear. So when David says, commit your way to the Lord, he's saying, you can come to God and you can, if, if what you are troubled by is what you see, then come to the Lord and lay it on him. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to help it. Come, and, and that's one of the things that you see throughout the Psalms, that the psalmists at various points are willing to cry out to the Lord. And I, what I love about it is it's, it's, it's uncensored. They will cry their frustrations. They will cry those anguish, those points of anguish. They will say that they feel like they've been forsaken. They will cry out. And what David is saying is trust in the Lord. Here's what you can do. You can commit your way to him. You can, that which is weighing you down, that which you, you don't understand, you can cast it upon him. His shoulders are more able to bear it than yours are. You see, brothers and sisters, no matter how much evil God sees in the world, it doesn't stop him from doing good. What David is reminding us of is that when we, we can indeed commit our way to the Lord, and he says this, and he will act. Now, here's what that does not mean. That doesn't mean that he's going to go down the street to the wicked person that's prospering and all of a sudden all of their luxury cars are going to be repossessed. That's, that's not what it means. Here's what it does mean, I think. is that God will remind us by feeding us with a grace that is greater than anything we conceive. And he will show us that this is not the end. That he, he will show us as what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 at the end of uh, in verses, I think, 15 and 16, where he says that we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. When we reaffirm our trust in God and come into that sacred space, what God does is he points us beyond the things that are seen, which are temporal, and he reaffirms to us the things that are not seen. You know what's not seen? Right now, what's not seen is a heavenly throne. But you know what the reality is? That if you are in Christ Jesus, I know where you are. I know where you are physically. I know where you are at this moment. And I know that sometimes even in your bodies as they fail, here's what it feels like. I'm just like going from hospital room to hospital room. But here's what God says about you. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. There's no oil that's going to announce that. There's no liver shiver that's going to reaffirm that. Here's where it's reaffirmed in the announcement of the gospel. God says, come into my holy space. You're disturbed about what you see. You see people prospering, but that's only for a moment. They're prospering, but they ain't seated. You're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Lord of the universe has given you the seat of honor. 
You're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you know what else about you? Do you know that you are pure? And that you are perfect? And that you are without sin? So no, 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 that, that ain't me. That might be Brother Soros over there. That's not me. I don't see it, don't feel it, don't always sound like it, and certainly don't always think it. He says, but come here, let me show you something. He takes us behind the veil so that we can see the truth that is in Christ Jesus. And right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And you know how he is while he's there? Sinless. The sinlessness of Christ is now credited to you. And so right now the Father sees you as if you had not sinned. You know what will be a greater reality? Is that one day it won't be that you are like you haven't sinned. One day you will be in his presence without sin. Blameless before him in love. I think what David means here when he says commit your way to the Lord is that God gives us the sacred space for us to pour out our concerns. Peter says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Or as the song says, take your burdens to the Lord, and I love what they say, and leave them there. What good is it to pack up all of your burdens, put them on, take them out to the house of the Lord, and then when you get ready to go home, oh, let me get my burden and take it right back with us. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, the wicked are prospering. And if it's a burden to you, cast your burdens upon the Lord, and he will act. And he will act by showing you a greater truth. And the greater truth is what he has promised and proclaimed in the good news of his grace in Jesus Christ. But here's a final thought concerning that pausing. He says in verse 3 that, or he reminds us, I should say, uh, in verse 4. That sometimes our, our being distracted and, and taken off course and, and fretting over those things that we see and allowing it to grow it causes us to lose our delight. Verse 4, David says, delight yourself in the Lord. Now, that's, it's a little questionable. Some have interpreted the latter part of that verse, and he will give you the, de- the desires of your heart. Here's what it doesn't mean. That God will give, ev- give you everything your little heart desires. No, he's, he's not that kind of God. But here's what he will do. Two things. He will change your affections. And then, so he will replace your your natural affections with godly affections. He will therefore give you what to desire. And then he will give you everything you need. That's what Peter says. He has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. Or Paul in in Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Savior Jesus Christ, who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, sometimes we can be so caught up by dealing with the sins of others or those things that are irritants to us that we lose our sense of delight. Now that's sometimes it's, it's, it's through the crucible of, of trial and experiences that causes the, 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 the glimmer of delight to, be, to, to kind of be shrouded a little bit. And I understand that. Certainly one can understand the frustration of Job. Job, at some point, he almost loses that, that zeal and that delight in the Lord as he deals with loss after loss after loss. God allows us, he brings us again into a sacred space and he renews to us his commitment of the commitments of his covenant love. And, and here's the implication of what David is saying, is that when we allow ourselves to burn with unholy anger, then we lose a sense of what our true delight is. It can cause us to to dig our heels in and cease to do good because we're mad. Remember remember, um, um, Jonah, when the Lord told him, go preach to Nineveh? And and Jonah was like, no, I kind of like hating. (laughs) I like like hating the Ninevites. Don't don't make me preach to them. So he tried to run and the Lord sent him back and, and, and sent a wave or a storm and a, and a fish and delivered him on the shores where he ended up preaching to Nineveh. You know what happens after he preaches? All of the Ninevites repent. Now you would think that he would rejoice, but he doesn't. He says, see, I knew it. I knew you'd mess around and forgive him. And then he pouted and he took his spiritual toys and went home and sat under a, 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 a tree that gave him covering. But here's what God reminds us of when we come into the sacred space, that there ain't nothing that he doesn't own and control. So just as the Lord commissioned a storm to get a runaway preacher and then commissioned a fish to deliver him to where he was supposed to be, the Lord, he he commissioned a little worm. And overnight, by the time, while while Jonah is trying to sleep under this, this, this shade tree, trying to get away from the heat of the day, the Lord sent a little bitty worm, not even an army of them, one worm. Ate up all of his shade. And then Jonah said, hey, what's up? And God says, what's up with you? You're supposed to be rejoicing. Souls have been saved and you're pouting. Here's what David is saying. Yeah, they're drive down the street. You're going to see some evil that seems like it's prospering. But I brought you into the presence of the Lord to show you that which is will not be. It's like a tree that grows in the morning and in the evening. I've allowed something to eat it up. The prosperity of the wicked is but for a moment. But the promises of the people of God are forever. Brothers and sisters, we don't serve God because he beats up our enemies. We don't serve God because he gives us nice stuff. We serve God because he's awakened us to the beauty of holiness. And we love him. We don't serve him to get and we don't stop serving him to get even.
sometimes unreconciled evil can distract us. What David says is don't fret because of evildoers. Because if you fret, you'll envy. And if you envy, then you'll stop doing good. And if you stop doing good, you'll stop delighting in the Lord. And if you stop delighting in the Lord, then you're going to find yourself with wicked. Brothers and sisters, here's what he's saying. Don't let your anger over what you see and can't explain, don't let it progress into something that's going to be destructive. Don't be like the coal that starts off as a solid piece of coal and ends up as ashes that can be blown away. Don't be consumed, he says, because here's what you know and here's what you are reminded of when you come into the sacred space of Almighty God, that God is over all, and the God who is over all has loved you with an everlasting love. And you haven't lost anything. You haven't lost anything just because somebody else is prospering. The joy of the Lord is upon the people of God. And it is that joy of the Lord that prompts us to serve him, even in spite of. Fret not yourself against evildoers or the workers of iniquity, because they'll soon be cut down. And when they get cut down, we will be raised up. Let's pray. God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing, you, knowing that you are our God and our Savior. Thank you for reminding us that we are easily distracted. Whether it's the prosperity of those that we think deserve judgment, or whether it's circumstances or personalities that we have conflict with, and we would rather not see them do well. We pray that as long as we are here, that it would be our desire to show your goodness and your grace to all men, and that we would trust that that, that which is unrighteous you will judge, and we know that you will. Let us seek righteousness for its own sake, let us not be distracted or disturbed in delighting in you. We pray that as you have loved us without condition, that we would learn to love you without condition as well. There's nothing that you need to fix. There's nothing that you need to move in order to prove your love for us. You've proved your love by sending your son who has proved his love by offering his life. Let us look to him as we depart so that we would be profitable in the places that you have called us to. We thank you for this time and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?
Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit rest, rule, and abide with you both now and forever. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.